You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn, and today we have a very special treat. I'll be interviewing Dr. Joel Beakey. Joel is a pastor and theologian. He's been a minister for close to 30 years. He also continues to serve as president of Puritan Reform Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he is the professor of systematic theology and homiletics. He's also a renowned expert on the Puritans, so very excited to talk to him today about family worship and the Puritans. And as a special treat, we've partnered up with Reformation Heritage Books, who is sponsoring this episode. We're going to be giving away copies of Joel's book, Family Worship. Check out the link in the show notes. You can sign up with your email address and get your free copy. In the book, Joel makes a very strong case for family worship, why it's so important in the life of the church and in your household. Dr. Beakey will cover things like the theological foundations for family worship, the duty of family worship, how to implement it, and what the key motivations from scripture are for implementing this practice in your life and in the life of your church. And now, without further ado, we're going to jump into the interview with Dr. Beakey. We begin with a discussion about family worship and its importance, as well as its biblical basis. And once again, special thanks to Reformation Heritage Books for sponsoring this episode. Check them out at heritagebooks.org, or you can follow the link in the show notes. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I, of course, am your host, Eric Kahn. And today I am joined by a very special guest, Dr. Joel Beakey. Joel, thanks for joining us for this episode of the podcast. It's great to be with you, Eric. So, Joel, I want to jump right in. We're going to talk about family worship. Um, I've spent maybe 20 years in the church, more reformed in the last 10 years, but especially prior to coming into the reformed world, family worship was not something that was widely practiced. So I want to start by just asking you, why did family worship fall on hard times in the history of the church? Yeah, there's many reasons, Eric. Certainly one reason is when you have human nature set up against a discipline, people tend to get lax. Mm-hmm. And people get lax with private prayer. They get lax with doing their daily devotions. And they get lax with family worship. The problem with family worship is it gotten so lax that many people don't even know there's many Christians don't even know they're supposed to be doing it. Yeah. You know, the Bible's pretty plain here, really, that we should be reading the word every day, instructing our children diligently in the word, Deuteronomy 6 tells us. And then we're told in Jeremiah that the family that does not pray together will bring down the wrath of God upon them. That seems very serious. Mm-hmm. And then we're also told in Psalm 118, verse 15, that when Israel walked through the tents in the wilderness, they heard singing coming from the tents, which obviously was not synagogue singing, but uh, family singing. So right there, you have the four primary duties in family worship. You need to um, pray together as a family. You need to instruct your children daily from the word as a family, which means you need to read the word as a family, and you need to sing as a family. 
Yeah, I think that's really huge. And, and one of the things I've heard a lot from people is, well, wait a minute, take me to the passage where it says, thou shalt do family worship. And I think what you're, you're illustrating for us is you've got to put some things together and wisely apply some principles. Some of the people who did that really well, and you've done a lot of work on their works, uh, are the Puritans. So I, I was kind of first introduced, you know, maybe 15 years ago to family worship, reading people like Matthew Henry, um, seeing what a pivotal part it played in their lives. So talk about kind of those two things and how family worship was such an important thing for the Puritans. Well, the Puritans wanted to be raising godly families. Mm. So they saw family worship as the most important thing in their entire lives because they said it was a central plank of parenting and child rearing. Mm. Matthew Henry mm. said it, the Puritan Matthew Henry said it so strongly when he um, quipped, as goes family worship, so goes the home. As wow. goes the home, so goes the church. Mm. As goes the church, so goes the nation. As goes the nation, so goes the world. So he would say that family worship is the foundational plank of all society. And when you, when you abandon family worship, even if you send your kids, for example, to a Christian school and they get educated in Christianity at church, that's all well and good. But the rubber hits the road in the family. The family is the real situation. And if the family doesn't, doesn't worship, then when kids go to school, when they go to church, they're going to say, this is fake. In the real world, at home, we don't worship. But if you have a three-pronged stool of Christian worship in the church and Christian worship in the school, whether it's homeschool or, 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 or whatever, or Christian school, and you have it in the, in the home in terms of family worship, you see, then you've got some consistency. Now, that's not to say, Eric, that family worship is the be-all and end-all. If you, if you conduct very good family worship and you act like a monster to your kids, you're going to unravel your family worship, right? Yeah. But family worship, the Puritans would say, is the foundational plank. So they wrote, um, numerous books on family worship, uh, how to do it, and they did it diligently. They did it actually twice a day. In my books, I'm asking people to only do it once a day. Interesting. So were they doing, uh, I'm assuming, morning and evening? Morning and evening. They said, you know, there's morning and evening sacrifices in the Old Testament economy. So that was a form of worship. And so we should do it morning and evening. Now, in our Dutch tradition, we actually, um, Kind of, it's kind of the Puritan Dutch tradition. What we would do is we will, still to today, for example, in my family, we will pray before each meal and then read scripture, make a few comments, and pray after each meal. So each meal is bookended with a little bit of family worship, but then after supper, and that's typical in the Dutch tradition, um, you, you know, you go to a separate room and you walk through those four, four steps in, you know, it doesn't have to be long, maybe 10 to 15, maximum 20 minutes, but the steady daily diet of family worship enables you to go through the whole Bible, talk with your children about every subject under the sun. The question is raised, of course, and you're probably going to ask me that in a moment anyway. 
So I might as well <laughs> get right to it. What does it actually do for the family long term? Yeah. How does it work? What should motivate us to do family worship? And Eric, I, I'm going to give you four very powerful reasons. Mm. The first is the eternal welfare of your children. Mm. I mean, you do want your children saved if you're a Christian. And how many millions of children have grown up in homes with family worship in ages past and were so impressed by their father in leading family worship and their mother in joining in. And God used it for their conversion. Uh, you can read it in book after book in the 16th, 17th, 18th century. Kids were persuaded mm. by family mm. worship that the only way to live was to surrender their lives to Christ. And then, of course, you have the satisfaction of a good conscience. Reason number two, when I'm laying on my deathbed, the Lord willing, I want to be able to get my children around me and say to them, don't you dare meet me, like Matthew Henry said to his children, don't you dare meet me on the other side of Christ. Mm. Because you know that despite all my flaws and faults as a father, I presented and offered Christ to you every day of your life. For all 20 years, you were at my home. And I, I've, I've preached him to you. I've, uh, I've invited you to come to him over and over and over and over again. And my conscience is free of your blood if you were to go in the wrong direction. So that's the second reason. You want to be able to die with a conscience that says, you know, I've really brought my children the gospel. Like Moses said, diligently, day by day, when I sat down, when I rose up, when I walked by the way. And the third reason is a reason I just call assistance in child rearing. Mm. Let, me, let me just walk this out a minute. When your kids turn into teenagers, there is a danger that some of them will get closer to their peers than they are to their parents, and they'll start to climb up, especially if they start getting a little bit reckless and uh, run a, a bit wild and um, start getting a bit rebellious. But you see, if you're talking to your kids about the most infinite, intimate things of the Bible every day, and you've cultivated an open relationship about every subject under the sun, normally, I'm not saying there's exceptions, but normally when they get to be teenagers, they're not just going to clam up all of a sudden. They're, they're used to opening up their mind and their soul to you in family worship. And so they're going to continue to do so. And if they're starting to wander away from the, from the narrow path, you can openly talk with them. You can dialogue back and forth. I, I think about this when I first had to talk to my son about uh, the facts of life. I, I mean, I had really never told him about, you know, all the different details. And I thought, well, the right age, I want to do it before his peers do it. I thought the right age was probably around 11. So when he was 11, maybe today it's 9 or 10, I'm not sure. But at that time, I talked to him. But as I began to talk to him, I realized, you know, I've shared my intimate spiritual experiences with him in family worship, sharing about physical intimacy and what's involved in marriage and a sexual relationship was, was really quite easy. And then... He apparently thought so, too, because when I got done, I said, if you have any questions, 
come to me and ask? He said, no problem, Dad. What's for supper? I mean, it was just like, <laughs> yeah, we talked yeah. about everything all our lifetime, so this is just one more thing. And you see, when you don't have that open conversational relationship and kids start getting tempted as they hit the teen years to show more allegiance to their friends than, than to you as parents, and maybe will go the wrong way, you need that. All those family worships are like putting money in the bank. You need those family worships in their background in order yeah. to stay the course. So that, that's reason number three. And then let me just give you a fourth one as well. And that, that's love for God in his church. You know, I've served three congregations in my life, Eric, and all three of them have had between seven and 800 members in God's strange providence. All three of them, if I looked around and said, what are really the backbone families of this church? I mean, the families that you know will never leave, the families that are loyal, the families that are solid, the families where both parents are really godly and the kids are godly. Almost inevitably, it's those families where the father does daily, intentional, sustained family worship in a godly way. One of the things we've advocated for in this podcast is men building strong families, strong households. If you're going to do that in today's world, you're going to need family worship. As we've been talking about earlier in the show, Joel Beakey has a wonderful book called Family Worship, 66 pages. This is a really good, solid, robust work defending the practice of family worship, including theological foundations, your duties as a father in family worship, and some practical ways you can implement family worship in your household, as a special thank you for listening to this episode, we're partnering with Reformation Heritage Books to bring you this free ebook. You can sign up in the show notes, give us your email address, and we'll send you a copy of that book. It is a wonderful resource from Reformation Heritage Books. Again, thank you so much to Reformation Heritage Books for being willing to give this book away. It is a wonderful tool for you to help build your household and grow as a man in this responsibility. Again, follow the link in the show notes below. Sign up and you can get your free copy. Be sure to check out more great works as well. Reformation Heritage Books at heritagebooks.org. Yeah, so important. And it, it brings up a really good question. I think one of the things that I had seen, especially in mainstream evangelicalism, is that we have a lot of moms who are present, you know, moms who are being, you know, bringing their kids to church. Um, but you can look at the data and, and really it's, I think like 80% of the time they're going to follow dad. Right. So one of the things we tried to do uh, in this show is like, encourage guys, how do you build a strong household? And this is, as you're saying, it's one of the, one of the pillars uh, for having a strong household. Again, Deuteronomy six, actually training your children to uh, fear God and worship him in everything that they do. One of the questions that a lot of people might ask uh, and you may be, you know, people have young kids and they're thinking, you know, should I start now? The answer is yes. Start wherever you are. Uh, but let's say somebody is is starting late in the game. Um, you've, I'm sure, had lots of people in church um, that you've pastored over the years. What kind of practical tips would you say? Because I, I think one of the questions I have, I, I've seen guys say, okay, I'm going to do this really elaborate, like two hour family worship every day. And then it yeah. just... It tends to not work out. So, I, again, what practical tips would you give if people are starting? Well, one, one main practical tip is I would say get this book, Family Worship Bible yes. Guide. For a man, this is a godsend. 
So what this book does is it takes all 1,169 Bible chapters. The father just simply has to read them when he's done reading the chapter. And they end with a question. And that's where your wife jumps in. Or if you're gone traveling, you know, she takes over the family worship. She reads it. And the kids jump in. And you start dialoguing. Now, sometimes it will only, you know, after one minute, you'll answer the question there and you don't really have much more to say. No problem. Not every day is going to be outstanding family worship. But you see, you're in it for the long haul. Another day, kids might feel more like talking. You might end up talking 15 minutes about that question. And it may go in different directions. That's all. That's just fine. The important thing is that you're talking every day to your children about the main things of life, uh, biblical things. So that's one thing. Second thing is, of course, what you just mentioned. Don't go too long. Don't exacerbate your kids. And if you're starting later in their lives and they're not used to it and they grumble, you just simply say to them, look, you know, I'm so sorry I didn't do this all your life. I realize I, I, I heard this podcast, so I read this book. I realize I've been sinning against God by not raising you rightly with family worship. And so I'm, I'm repenting of that. And I, I, want you to, I want your cooperation. We give you physical food every day. It's also our responsibility to give you spiritual food. So just really, I know it may seem new. It may seem a little hard at the beginning. But please contribute. Please show a positive attitude. And as we get going in this, I've been assured by many godly people around me, this will be to all of our advantages. And so hang in there with me, kids, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to like family worship as we talk about real things every day. Now, I could also say just a little bit, if you want me to, on each part of family worship, give you a couple, a couple quick hints on each part. Yeah, I'd love that. That'd be fantastic. Okay. So the first, the first part is usually I start out with prayer and I have my wife and my children close with prayer at the end of family worship before we sing. That is, we always sing last because the Puritans said, I think they're right. Singing, singing lasts on the memory bank longer than other things. So you might as well sing last so you can carry it with you. That's great. (laughs) Um, So anyway, I begin with a prayer. And my prayer is usually three to four minutes, not inordinately long, but it's not just a little short, shallow thing either. I try to remember the needs of children. I try to teach them the Acts formula. First, you adore God, then you confess sin, and you show thanksgiving, you express thanksgiving, and then you bring your supplications. One of the kids is going to have a big test next day in school. I remember that. If they're, if they're sick, I'll remember that. But I also want them to hear me confessing sin before God, also our family sins, our shortcomings. I want them to hear my heart of thanksgiving to God as well. I want to model prayer for them. Try to have balanced prayers where you have the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And also teach your children to pray when they're very young. So what I did is I took them on my lap when, when they were three years old. And I had them do the closing prayer. And it would take turns, and I'd whisper into their ears what words to say. For about one year, I did that. And they'd whisper every single thing I said, they'd, whisper, they'd, they'd say aloud. When they're four years old, I'd say, now you, because I had them on my lap, of course. You want your kids close by you when they're young, 
in family worship. And put your arm around both of them on your lap. Give them, you know, you're looking at them eyeball to eyeball so they don't look all around and wander away. But you keep them close. And then when they're four years old, I would say, you start the prayer. And when you run stuck, you just kind of poke daddy in the stomach with your elbow. And they did. And uh, then I would, I would uh, start whispering again to them. And they'd say the words. And then did that for about four years. And then when they're seven years old, I'd say, okay, Calvin, you're on your own now. Uh, just you do the whole prayer. That way, even if they're unconverted, at least they still know kinds of things they should pray for. I can't teach them to truly pray. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But I can sure train them about the right things to say in prayer so that they're not embarrassed when their friends come over for, fam for supper and join us for family worship and feel like they can't pray in front of them. And um, there's just too many Christians today that grow up never praying aloud, and then they get married, and all of a sudden they got to pray aloud. It's crazy. Never done it. Yeah. Yeah, you should be training kids at, at three years old how to pray. So that's the prayer, the, the prayer thing that I want to say. Um, in terms of reading the Bible, make sure that your kids take turns as soon as they can read every day with you as parents. And you train them to read well. You train them to read with reverence at the right speed, with the right kind of um, uh, pathos and ethos and reverence. And that's actually really quite simple. You just have to say something half a dozen times. Oh, you're going too fast here, son. Remember, this is the Word of God. Uh, and, and they get the hang of it very early on because they hear you reading the Bible. But And you, as a parent, should read the Bible with lots of expression and excitement. The Bible is a living, breathing book. Read it that way. Mm. Don't just read it as if it's all just a bunch of prose with, with, with nothing happening, with a monotone voice. And then, in your instruction to them, this is the most important part. You take that family worship Bible guide, use that, yes, but then try to develop in the discussion thoughts that you can communicate to them that could um, have, a, have a real impact on them for the rest of their lives. My, my dad was really, really good at that, actually. He'd say things like this to us. I remember the day he said to us in family worship, what do you think is more important, an instruction from, from God to a believer or a comfort. And I always didn't know what to say to my dad's questions because his answers <laughs> were always much deeper than my answers. So I just always said, I don't know. <laughs> and he said to me, well, an instruction is more important because it lasts a lifetime. A comfort just lasts a little while. You know, I never forgot that. And that type of thing, uh, you know, any fatherly wisdom based on the Bible is so important to communicate. The point is to do it at the child's level. Don't let one particular child who seems to know a lot about the Bible do all the answering. Direct questions to each child at that child's level as much as you can. Now, the Family Worship Bible Guide is mainly geared for children 10 years and up. So we have, you know, tens of thousands of families have, have bought this and um, I get more feedback on this than I do in probably everything else I've ever done in my life put together. Uh, a father's coming to me and just saying, wow, family worship 
has been transformed in my family. I use the Family Worship Bible Guide religiously every day. There's nothing like it. Uh, it's just a, such a blessing to my family. You know, it goes on and on. So um, I know, I know, and I'm, I'm saying this, I trust humbly that God has used me in this area probably more than any area of my ministry. Mm. And I feel so strongly about it. And I've seen the results when people actually actually follow the Family Worship Bible Guide and it gets them going in their discussions and things just change. Their family worship is no longer something that they feel like they're a failure at every day. So it doesn't take any uncommon wisdom to do this. But the key thing is each one at their own age level question. So what we're doing now, uh, Nick Thompson, who's one of our PRTS graduates, and myself, we're doing nine volumes of family worships written out in full for children four to nine. Oh, cool. The first volume just came out uh, about six months ago. It's called Beginning. It's 90 family worships in the book of Genesis. Volume two is at the printer right now, so it'll be out in about four months, I hope, or maybe six. And uh, that's on uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy. And then right now we're working on volume seven, which we're going to jump to the New Testament and do the Gospels. And we're going to go back and forth between Old and New Testament until the whole nine-volume series is done. And then you can walk your children basically through the whole Bible, also your young ones, in, in family worship. Yeah, that's fantastic and a, a really great resource. So we're talking to fathers and families. One of the other questions that I think some people will have if, if you're a pastor, and you're saying, why should I prioritize family worship? Okay, so we sort of answered that. Um, but if you're, if you're looking at the church, what can the church be doing not to replace what families and fathers are doing, but to assist them? Uh, what kind of advice would you give to the, the pastor? Should he be preaching on this? Should, how should he encourage, et cetera? Oh, absolutely. You should be preaching on this. I mean, you don't preach on it every year, um, but you know, every four, five, six years, uh, it's needed. And, and, and families tend to, tend to hold their own and do it well for a while, then some families tend to slip away again. What we do in our churches, we always ask them when we do, we, we have, that's an old Dutch custom and Puritan custom, where the elders and the minister visit each family once a year and ask how things are going spiritually and naturally in their home. And so this is always one of our questions. How is family worship going? Mm. And if the Puritans would say, <laughs> we don't do it that strongly, but the Puritans would say, if the father said, well, I'm not doing it, they'd say, well, we'll give you one more year. When we come back next year, if you're not doing it, we're going to put you under censor and take away the freedom you have to partake of the Lord's Supper because oh, you're wow. failing yeah. in your major duty as a father. I mean, we're, we're light years away from that. And I'm not saying we should do that, but I'm telling you that example to show you yeah. how deadly serious they were about every father doing, doing family worship. Yeah, it's hugely important. One, one of the things too, so going to Puritanism, and, and really these things seem tied together, right? So if you have uh, shepherds who are being faithful over their flock, then that impacts fathers and how they tend to their flocks, their families. Uh, one of the things that has always inspired me reading, of course, Richard Baxter and the Reformed Pastor, 
it was something when I read it, I realized, wow, this is not really the picture early in my ministry. This is not really what I had seen uh, happening in a lot of churches. So as you look at examples like Richard Baxter, you, you see a guy who was, you know, ha- had a pretty large church, if I'm not mistaken, uh, a lot of people. But as you said, they would meet with all of them. Um, they did a, a lot of catechism, counseling, all those sorts of things. So maybe if you would just talk a little bit about that model for pastoral care and yeah. how it shaped those Puritan churches as well. Yeah. So Richard Baxter was one of the most notable examples. He said that often, as important as sermons are, a half hour, a half hour with an individual, shepherding that soul and his specific spiritual needs can do more than a thousand sermons. Mm. And now that's a bit of a hyperbole, but you know what he's saying is individualized attention is very important. Because a minister is really a spiritual physician. And um, what the Puritans, many of them would do at least, not maybe all of them, Puritan ministers, is they would actually go and model family worship for these families from time to time. Interesting. And particularly after they officiated the marriage of, of a couple, after the couple settled in, maybe some months later, they'd invite themselves over for for dinner and um, get a free dinner, I guess. And then afterward, they'd say, okay, now let's let's do family worship and I'll model it for you. And then the father would take that modeling and try to imitate it with his wife and, of course, one day with his children. So that home visitation was an important part of pastoring. And today in many churches, it's amazing. Ministers never, never, never even enter the home of their people. No. Uh, and, and people don't expect that even either. They think it'd be strange if the minister would come over. Well, in the olden times, a minister was looked up to as the number one leader in the community, and it was just a huge honor. People loved it when the minister came over. And um, even when they knew he was going to ask them questions about their soul and their life, they saw it as, as a privilege. So you've got the catechization at church. You've got the catechization that the minister would model in the home through family worship. And then you've got also the minister, don't forget the Puritan method where you're speaking from the pulpit and you're simplifying your message so children can understand. And uh, you're also calling on them. Boys and girls in the sermon, drawing them in so that children feel like they're part of the actual worship service. So the Puritans would would not believe, I'm probably stepping on some toes here, they would not believe in children's church that the children would go off to a separate room and get instructed and then join the full congregation when they're maybe 10 years old. You know, they're out of the home by the time they're 20, so they've only got 10 years in the public worship. No, no, no. By the time those children are two or three years old, the Puritans would have them in church. And in our churches, we we tend to, we do have a nursery uh, for the very, very young children, but we bring them in when they're three, usually. Christendom Bible College offers a one-year certificate in the humanities for students who intend to pursue a degree or for students who prefer to begin their chosen occupations upon completion of our program. 
older students who never attended college or who went to a college where the humanities were less robust will also find our program stimulating and suitable. Located steps from the Ohio River in the town of New Richmond, we're unaccredited in order to remain free to teach as our biblically-minded consciences demand. As servants of Christ, we won't wear the yoke of the woke. Instead, we stand on the shoulders of Christianity's giants, not to stew in nostalgia, but to see through the culture wars fall to the glorious days of a Christendom still to be built. Our exceptional faculty are committed to the historic, biblical foundations of our faith. Come be a part of Christendom Bible College. Visit us on the web at christendombiblecollege.org to learn more. While there, be sure to sign up for our email updates and receive your free three-chapter excerpt of our very own Dr. Frank J. Smith's new book, Race, Church, and Society. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. That's one of the hot-button issues that we've faced as a church is just that when people show up and they're like, well, where's Children's Church? And we're right here. Like, we're worshiping together. Um, and it, it's crazy, too. I mean, I was talking with another pastor this week, and he's got a six-year-old who was sick, couldn't come to church. And he said he, he was in tears. He was like, I, but I want to worship. Like, I, I want to be there with God's people. And so that's what we're trying to, uh, trying to instill. Uh, I, Joel, I want to ask you another question about the Puritans. Uh, so this was actually the first time I ever found your works, I think, was in seminary. So this is like 20 some odd years ago. I think Al Mohler had recommended uh, the fat blue book on Puritanism, sort of encyclopedia uh, of the Puritans. So I got exposed to a lot of stuff, ended up spending a lot of money on Richard Sibbs sets and, you know, lots of stuff (laughs) like this, falling in love with it. Uh, Mark Dever at the time was giving lectures on Sibbs. I think he had done his doctoral on that. Um, So a lot of really great stuff. A A lot of people would ask, okay, where should I start? Um, so I want, I want to get your like maybe top five picks. Where would somebody be best suited to start with the Puritans if they haven't been exposed? Well, if you, if you don't use the King James version of the Bible, which most people don't today, um, it's the, the old language will be difficult for you. If you've grown up on the King James, I would, I would send, send you directly to the Puritans. Yeah. If you haven't grown up on the King James, I would send you to, a series of books done by Reformation Heritage Books, heritagebooks.org. It's called Puritan Treasures for Today. Puritan Treasures for Today. These are all short books between 75 pages and maybe 175 pages. Small in size, and they just take up very important subjects. And every single sentence of those books is edited into contemporary language. So it it feels like it was written yesterday. And what happens with thousands of people when they read these books, they go, wow, this is incredible. It's so rich substance compared to so many of the books I'm reading in the Christian bookstore today. Who are these guys, these Puritans? So one of them would be, for example, triumphing over sinful fear. Mm. by John Flavel. Oh, that book is so rich. Assurance of Faith by um, Anthony Burgess. Um, Stop Loving the World by William Greenhill. That's a powerful book. Yes. And uh, books like that. So start with the Puritan Treasures for today, and they'll, they'll grab hold of you, and then you'll want to read the Puritans in their original language. And some Puritans are still really, even 
not, not that difficult to read. Um, Thomas Watson is the one I usually recommend first. I send people to The Kingdom of Heaven Taken by Storm. Mm, great book. Or Heaven yeah. Taken by Storm, yeah. And that's a great book. It talks to you about how to use all the different spiritual disciplines and what they can do for you in your practical Christian life. And then I say probably go to John Bunyan after you've read Watson a while. And John Bunyan, and maybe work your way up a little bit to John Flavel, uh, Thomas Brooks. And then work your way up gradually to Thomas Goodwin and John Owen. They're, they're more difficult, longer sentences, more complex. But boy, are they rich. Mm. So that'd be the journey I would take. Yeah, that's uh, some some really good recommendations. Um, I know some of the some of my favorites uh, of all time, like Jeremiah Burroughs on contentment. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about the a lot of their style is it's you can tell that they were pastors who were very practical with their people. So a lot of right. the analogies and examples, it's like, wow, yeah, I never thought about it like that, and it's very like rural agrarian type metaphors and stuff that like working people would understand. Um, so really helpful. One of the things that we did, I took a Puritanism course at Southern Seminary with Sean Wright, and uh, he made us go through the death of death and the death of Christ, so John Owen. And I had always kind of complained about it because it was so dense. And these are like the, you know, three page, one sentence type deal. And uh, he made us outline it sentence by sentence. And it took probably a month of, you know, full attention to outline his argument. But I appreciate it now because I look back and I think the man was a genius. I mean, if you actually start to unpack and understand their argumentation, um, it was really, really quite amazing. So if guys want to go into the deep end, John Owen is one. What would be some other kind of dense but but rich theological treatises you might recommend? Well, I mentioned Thomas Goodwin along with John Owen. Mm. Um, Thomas Goodwin was my favorite favorite Puritan for most of my life. Uh, when I was 17 years old, of course, I grew up on the King James, don't forget. So I, I, I could go straight. To, <laughs> when I yeah. got converted at 15, I could go straight to Goodwin. I didn't find him that difficult. But Goodwin is very profound in his spirituality and very profoundly exegetical as well. But I got so much help from Christ, our mediator. That book just kind of open the door for me experientially to see the mm. beauty of Christ. And, but he also has another book, which I didn't read then, but I came to really love later, um, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards His Saints on Earth. Mm. Oh, it's just an amazing book. But also books like uh, Man's Guiltiness Before God, 500 pages on that, really what sin is and how grievously we sin against God by nature. That was a very moving book in my life teach me the the sinfulness of sin uh so so good one would be high on my high on my list um another one that's a bit on the more difficult side but very weighty probably the best classic ever written in the history of mankind on god would be uh, stephen sharnock the attributes of god interesting uh, two volume thousand pages on the attributes of god wow close to 200 pages just on the goodness of god uh, but but without any repetition, just amazing, just amazing. Is that one still in print? Yeah, Shonak is pretty much always in print. 
Okay. Uh, if it's out of print, it would be back in print by somebody within a year because it's such a staple item. There was a guy for quite a while when I was a bit younger. Um, he would send a free copy to anybody in the United States. Really? Who requested it. Who requested it as long as they promised to read it. He had to promise to read it within two years. And um, <laughs> he, just wanted, he just wanted people to, to get out of it what he got out of it. But it really <laughs> yeah. overwhelmed him with the character of God. Joel, one of the questions I have in all of this, I've thought about this for a while. I'm sure you have as well. You have a lot of years of experience in ministry. You've watched the American culture. Uh, one of the things that I've often thought, you know, I, I was, so I was going to seminary, really the emergent church was still big. People in your territory, uh, people were still all about Rob Bell. Um, I remember that being really just a huge, huge thing. And I remember even being called, somebody told me one time, they said, oh, you're so puritanical. And I was like, I thought it was a compliment. It actually turns out it wasn't. It was an insult. Uh, but it's made me wonder, could we see a reformation along the lines of Puritanism? Um, you start reading some of the early Puritan movement and you think, well, you know, we're reformed. So there was this great spark and God's grace and the moving of the spirit. And we had a reformation. So that should give us hope. But do you anticipate seeing anything like that in America today or any time in the near future? Well, revivals are hard to predict, aren't they? Because they're the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. So if you ask me the question, are you praying for this? I would give you a resounding yes. Mm. If you ask me the question, are you anticipating this? I'm hoping for it. <laughs> but yeah. I, you know, I don't want to use the word anticipate because that would be almost like preempting God. God is just sovereign in this. And um, I do believe based on scripture, that the end days, the godly will get more godly and the ungodly will get more ungodly. And the antithesis, which we're seeing now, of course, big time, becomes sharper between the believer and, and the unbeliever. So I think, I think that's pretty predictable and pretty scriptural. But if you look at church history, God sent revival sometimes at the darkest times. Mm. Usually what you find is he stirs up in his own people, first of all, a spirit of prayer and supplication. And then he often uses, not always a whole bunch, but sometimes just a handful or two handfuls of godly men, ministers usually, who are really on fire for the Lord and have some gifts to really preach with power and who can pray and agonize with God. And these men... Uh, become leaders in the new movement, and God uses them uh, remarkably. So that's what that's what we long for. In fact, obviously, I'm sitting in Puritan Reform Seminary right now, and uh, so much of what I do is is teaching young men from ministry from dozens of different denominations. But I often look out over my classroom, and what I'm saying to myself, Eric, as I'm teaching is. Am I am I teaching someone who's going to be another <laughs> Luther or another Whitfield or um, you know you never know you never know oh, yeah I've had students who who left this seminary at the end of four years and they they they're just really really gifted a gifted young man and how is God going to use this person well will he be used for the conversion of thousands of people or even hundreds and I mean. Well, just what a thought that is. 
Yeah, really good points. Uh, Joel, in terms of works, uh, where can people follow you? I don't know if you're you're mainly just writing books, teaching right now. Is there any place online where people can follow what you've been working yeah, on? Yeah, yeah, I have a, I have a Facebook. Um, if you just if you just Google Joel Beaky Facebook, you'll find it. Um, I have a blog. I'm on Twitter, Instagram. Um, I don't go on any of those myself, but I send material. And, and, and I have, I have a, a fellow that puts it on every day, basically. Excellent. And uh, yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm a really book person. So I've, I've felt called to write since I was 15 years old. And so I've been writing for, for over, um, yeah, over 50 years. And uh, I feel closest to God when I write. So I get restless when I don't write for a couple of weeks. thanks again for listening to this episode of the hard men podcast and again special thanks to dr joel beaky for joining us wonderful discussion on family worship again a reminder if you go to the link in the show notes enter your email and you will get a copy of family worship by dr joel beaky an ebook and a special thanks to reformation heritage books for making this ebook available to you as a thank you for listening to this episode We appreciate all your support. Speaking of support, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. If you're not yet a Patreon supporter, I encourage you to go to Patreon. You can check out that link in the show notes as well for my Patreon. You can join today for as little as $5 a month. Become one of our tier members. Support this work. It takes money, effort, time, etc. to produce this content. We're seeking to build up Christendom, and as we do, we need your support. So please consider joining on Patreon, again, everybody who is already a supporter, we deeply appreciate your partnership in this work of rebuilding Christendom. Until next time, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men. <laughs>